Well, good morning, Fairhaven Church. You look like you got another hour of sleep. It's good. Thank you for being here. Um, if you're a guest, you've been greeted in all of our campuses. I want to greet you as well. My name is David. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here on staff. It's great to have you. Thank you for making us part of your weekend. For those of you that come on a regular basis, it's great to see your faces. As we are in a series called Let's Talk About It, these are questions that you have raised, and so we're trying to answer them. And today we get a little more specific, and, uh, and so we're going to dive right in. I want to welcome all of our campuses, Springboro, Northmont, Beaver Creek, Classics, uh, all those that are online with us in Centerville, it's great to see you here today. If you want to grab your Bible and make your way to 1 Corinthians, you can do that. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, actually. We'll find ourselves for just a little bit there. As I mentioned last week, I just want to tell you again, if you've got children under the age of 12, I'm going to let you navigate how you want to uh, sort that out in all of our campuses. Uh, we are going to be PG-13 here today as we get into the subject of sex and marriage and singleness. And so I've got a lot to share with you today. But let me start by telling you that in two weeks, we're pretty excited, we have a guest speaker called Dr. Christopher Yuan, who's coming on Saturday the 18th, and he's going to help us navigate some conversations that are even very, very challenging uh, for some of our families and for some of you, and so if you'd like to sign up for that, um, that's coming up quickly, and so we really want you to sign up for that. It's on the 18th, and then he's going to be here on the 19th and share his story. It's an incredible story, and so I hope you'll be here for that as well. All right, here are the questions that you have submitted, and I'm going to try to answer all these questions in one message today, and the questions are this. How does culture deify sex? Why no sex before marriage? What is wrong uh, with living together before marriage? Isn't that outdated? I mean, isn't that something that just needs to be updated in 2023? What is the actual problem with pornography or porn? What does the Bible say about sex? I could take you to a lot of different passages. The truth is, if you Google these kinds of questions, you would find all kinds of verses uh, because questions about our sexuality, about our singleness, and about marriage uh, are very confusing to so many, obviously, because you ask the questions, and we see that in our culture today. And so if you're here today and you are a high school student, I commend you for being here because I didn't learn this when I was a kid. And so I'm grateful that we get to learn this together today. If you're in college, you're going to get a vision today of God's uh, vision for sexuality in your life. If you're single, you need to know that you are viable. Uh, it isn't that hopefully someday you'll arrive to being married. No, singleness is a viable state of, of life. And if you're married today, what does it mean for you and how do you engage that? If you're a parent, you're going to want to teach your children this because we're going to talk about the vision of what the Bible says to us about sexuality and what that means for us. I'm actually going to give you three narratives, uh, three stories, if you will, of how we can understand this. And so there's all kinds of verses out there. I mean, I show you a whole list of them up there, and a lot of them are don't, and don't, and don't, and don't, and no, 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 until you get married, then it's yes, 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 and that's kind of confusing, and so we've got to figure this out in our lives, and so I want to start with 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, and so if you have your Bibles, I'm going to read them for you, and, uh, and then we're going to see if we can understand and answer these questions that we have with these narratives. Here's what Paul says, Paul being single, by the way. He says, uh, do you not know that the unrighteous, that's people who do not have a relationship with God, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. I love that. 
In other words, if, that, if those categories somehow fits you, um, there's another way. There's, an, there's a better path for you. And so he says, but, circle the word but there, because this is a conversation you can have with your kids and your grandkids and with each other, but you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified. I hope in all of our campuses today online, we've, you've asked you to get your own elements. I hope you got some communion elements. I mean, there's no better week to talk about communion than on a Sunday we talk about sexuality and things that we wrestle with in our own lives because it's right here in communion that we celebrate that there is a new covenant, that we've been washed and we have been sanctified and we have been justified. So what a perfect week. If you're here visiting with us, you get a little bit of an opportunity to hear some of the questions that we're answering here. If you want to underline the word sexually immoral, it's the word pornos um, in the Greek, and you probably recognize that word. That word is where we get the word pornography. It simply means someone who indulges in sexual acts because of lust in their life. And so, meaning that it's not a, uh, the, the design that God have. It, it's, really, it's really giving into something that wasn't designed to be that way. And that's really what that means in there. First um, Corinthians, as you're turning your Bibles there, as you have your Bibles open, rather, to First Corinthians, um, we think of our culture as pretty bad. As you see things on the news, as you see things in print, things on the internet, we'll talk a little bit about that today. Um, church, let me just remind you that uh, in Corinth, it was a lot worse. I mean, it was horrible in Corinth. That's why Paul wrote this letter. And so if you want, I encourage you to read chapters 5 of 1 Corinthians, chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, and chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, because you're going to find yourself somewhere in there, um, whether you find yourself or whether you find a good conversation or whether you want to move on and be a parent and teaching your kids and grandkids, it's all right there. Let me give you an example. You don't need to turn there, but let me give you an example of how bad things were um, in Corinth. Because Paul is talking to the church as I'm talking to you. So if you are here today and you're a follower of Jesus, this is for you. If you're here today and you're on the fence, I'm so glad you're here because you get the opportunity to at least understand what's God's vision for sexuality. Um, it might help you to at least understand that in your life. And so um, let me tell you how bad it was in Corinth. In chapter 5, actually, it tells us in there that Paul is talking to the church and he says, hey, listen, there's a guy in the church who's actually having sex with his mother-in-law. That's actually in chapter 5. Then he goes in chapter 6 and he says, uh, some of you are having sex with prostitutes and then going to worship, as if like you can separate those two things in your life. And so there were some pretty rotten things and some terrible things that were happening in Corinth. And the truth is, the reality is in Corinth, they needed a vision for a biblical vision for sexuality as we do. And so today, I hope that we will find, because we need a biblical vision of sexuality, of singleness, and of marriage. So I want to mention all three, and hopefully we'll answer all these questions as we have here today. As I said, there are three narratives. And I want to show you the three narratives, because truthfully, most of us probably know the two narratives. We probably haven't thought about the third narrative. There's two narratives that I'm pretty sure that you have heard or at least thought about because you've seen it in your life and you've seen it all around you. But there is a third narrative, and I'm here to tell you it's a great one too. 
There's a third narrative that I hope that you'll gather today as we want to build a vision for our sexuality. So let me dive right in. We've got three narratives. Here's the first narrative. The first narrative is the cultural narrative, the cultural story, what our culture says or how our culture lays out your sexuality and my sexuality that we're bombarded with every single day. It's called the cultural narrative. And what you'll see in all of three of these narratives is I'm going to give you some key ideas behind the narrative I'm going to give you some, the message, one sentence message that the narratives really are, are pushing, um, the behaviors that follow the narrative. And so if you look at the narrative, you'll see the behaviors there, uh, the pushback um, to defending the narrative actually, and then the formula. In other words, how do, how do they write the formula of sexuality in the narrative? And so we're going to start with the cultural narrative. And so let's take a look at some of the key identities or key ideas in the cultural narrative. Here they are. Expressive individualism. I mentioned that five weeks ago. If you weren't here, I mentioned that. Expressive individualism is something that's happening in our culture today, um, even more so than perhaps it was in 20, 30, 40 years ago. That's not to say it wasn't happening. It's to say that it's more prevalent. It's more you know, out there. We see it more. It's not that it hasn't happened as much. We see it more. And the expressive individualism simply says that your feelings are the highest possible good. So when it comes to your sexuality, however you feel, um, that is the most significant thing you need to know about your sexuality. If you feel a certain way, or if you're in a relationship and you feel an attraction uh, towards somebody and you want to just you know, act out on that feeling, that's called expressive individuality. In the cultural narrative, um, here are some of the key ideas. You just live out your authentic self. Have you ever heard that before? Just live out your authentic self. Just live out what you feel, what you think. Um, doesn't matter. That's the cultural narrative that we have today. Another key idea of the cultural narrative is that your identity is tied to your sexuality. And so there's a clear tie between your, your sexuality and the way you live out sexuality and your identity. In fact, the cultural narrative would, would say that that's how, what, that's how you should promote yourself. You promote yourself based on your identity, because your identity is wrapped up and tied up in your sexuality. That's the key idea when it comes to the cultural narrative. And I think if we were honest, we would see that all around us. Here's another key idea, that you can only be happy in your life if you acknowledge that identity. In other words, if you live that out. Um, so whatever that identity is for you, or whatever you feel in that identity, um, if you act it out, that's how you're going to experience the greatest amount of happiness. And so forget what the people around you say. You just need to lean into how you feel, because that's the expressive individualism. And then you need to just live out your authentic self. And then the important thing is that you are happy. And so that's the key idea. Here's the message. It's in one statement, and that's this, that consent is all that matters. In the cultural narrative, when it comes to sexuality, it's just all about consent. Consent is the only thing that matters. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. In fact, I'd prefer you not to cheer, not to say amen, not to just sit back because there's some pain that are associated to all these things. But I think you'd agree with me to just have sexuality as a consent, rather, as the bar of sexuality. That's pretty low. Would you agree, church? That's a really low bar. Consent is all that matters. And so the questions that arise are, what is the problem if two consenting adults want to engage in some sexual activity? I mean, what's the problem? That's, that's the message of the cultural narrative. 
Thank goodness that it's at least at this point to consenting adults. Um, what happens if it gets beyond that? And so uh, that's what was happening in Corinth, actually. And so it can, get, it can get worse. That's why I think we need a vision. We need a biblical vision to help us to understand what this is all about. See, the message of consent is all about acting out the freedom that you have to be your true self. And so if you're a note taker, you may want to just jot down the word true self. Because it's all about consent, and it's all about your true self, and it's all about your authentic self, and it's all about your feelings. Here are the behaviors. So this is what it looks like in our culture. I don't think this is a surprise to anybody, but let's just talk through them a little bit because these are the behaviors that we see in our culture today because this is their story. This is the cultural narrative um, that, that is given to us. The behaviors are, number one, a hookup culture. Now, all you have to do is ask a 30-year-old because they probably know what this is more so than if you're 80 years of age, perhaps. But the truth is, this has been happening for since the beginning of time. Uh, it's a hookup culture. Um, as a matter of fact, you can go on some apps, apps like Tinder. I'm not suggesting you do, obviously. <laughs> Tinder, Ashley Madison, Hinge, Pure. And this is actually what they'll say. In the research, I didn't look at the apps, but I looked at the research, and here's what the research says, that they actually say these apps will promote themselves in this way, that if you want casual sex, or if you want trusted affairs secretly, then log on to one of these apps. And if you go on to one of these apps, then you can find yourself in a sex with no strings attached. And I would say that's an oxymoron. That's absolutely an oxymoron as we begin to learn about this. The hookup culture is called the hit it and quit it culture, where so much is happening uh, among you know, the youth and our teens and even in the elderly, believe it or not, it's happening, it's incredible actually. Um, the apps, Tinder, is just a little over 10 years old as an app, and so now there's all kinds of research, actually, that has come out about the, this app, Tinder, and many of the others, actually. But the app, Tinder, over 10 years of, of age, and so what they've done is they've looked at some research, and they've found that those who actually log on to things like Tinder and Ashley, Ashley Madison and others, uh, that loneliness is rising, and mental health is deteriorating. That's according to the research, according to this, because the hookup culture has something at its core, which is started from the sexual revolution. That's the next kind of behavior that we see here. Uh, it stems from the sexual revolution, which really came out in the 60s, 1960s, where it was love, not war, and really an emphasis on love um, and doing whatever you wanted, whatever you felt in your life. And so this is what the sexual revolution says, that you can separate your body from your emotions, and you can separate your body uh, through pleasure. That somehow through pleasure, you can separate what your body does from what your emotions and what your mind and even what your spirituality is, and that's why Paul is talking to the church here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And so we have this hookup culture, we have the sexual revolution that's right before our eyes, and the sexual revolution says it won't affect who you are, it just won't affect what you feel. You can just separate those two out. It doesn't matter uh, in your life. And then, of course, then the other behaviors we have is pornography, and I'm sure that pornography is something that you've heard about. Did you know that this year... It's touted that pornography will go in sales in the year 2024 to over one trillion. That's with a T. 
Tom, trillion dollars in the course of a year. It used to be millions, and then it was billions, and then it's 970 billion, and they're touting that in 2024, it's gonna go to one trillion, and so you have things like soft pornography, you have hardcore pornography, and you have hard pornography, or somewhere in the peen. And so you see movies that are being touted, like Fifty Shades of Grey. We should not be watching that movie. Um, I just want to say that right up front. It's just not a, a good movie um, in terms of your mind and, and, and all that. And so that's, we see that. And then we see things like pornography, mommy pornography. Uh, did you know that 15% of all searches on the internet, 15%, of all searches on the internet uh, are related to pornography. 15%, and so we need a vision. Uh, we need something better. We need to understand what, is, what has God given to us in our bodies and in our sexuality. Um, we're gonna get to that in a second here. Um, what's really interesting to me is that 30% of those looking for porn are women. We used to say this is just a guy's problem. Uh, it's no longer just a guy's problem. It has enormous effects. The ripple effects are huge in high schoolers, on college students, singles, marriages. Um, the ripple effect is absolutely enormous, enormous. Um, there's another behavior, and that's sex before marriage. Now, let me just stop here for a second and tell you that there are some good apps out there. Um, there are apps where couples have met each other. I've married actually quite a number of couples that have met each other on social media or apps. And so I don't want to throw all the apps out. So make sure you hear that from me in any one of our campuses. Um, there are some good apps out there. Christian Mingle, however, which is an app that you know brings couples together, they say when it comes to sex before marriage that 63%, listen to this, 63% of those ages 18, are you ready for this? to 59, ages 18 to 59, admit to sex before marriage because of the cultural narrative, that if that's what you feel and if it's in the moment, then act out on it. After all, it's no big deal. It's, you know, it's who you are. And things are said like, well, you would never buy a car without test driving it. You may have heard that statement before. I would push back using that same argument and say, if you want to become an airplane pilot, there's nobody that's going to get on an airplane to let you test pilot a plane. No one would do that, right? And so you, if you want to use that logic, you can flip it around a little bit. And so, you know, there's sex before marriage. And then you've got the LGBTQ plus community. We'll get to that in two weeks. And so I hope you'll come back for that. And then here's one that we don't often talk about. That's polygamy. Uh, that's actually happening today. It's a behavior in the cultural narrative where there's swingers that are happening, where married couples are engaging other couples or other people in their marriage and in their sexuality. And so you can see there's just, it goes on and on and on. Here's the pushback. You ready for the pushback? Back. Let me give you the pushback in, this, in this, uh, this narrative. In other words, here's the defense for this, uh, this narrative. The defense is this, that there's a cultural Christian discipleship. In other words, even in the church, there are people saying that when you read Scripture, we're not really sure if this is what the Bible is saying, A, and B, we need to update our theology in order to understand our culture. This is actually happening. And of course, Paul is addressing that uh, to the Corinthian church. He's saying that, look, you're, you're just uh, taking on what the culture is and bringing it right into your faith, and that's not going to work for you. It's just not going to work. It's not a good narrative. It's not a good uh, vision for you. And so this is what's happening even today, where there's a cultural, biblical culture, meaning that there's believers who say they're followers of Jesus who say 
we need to update a little bit. I mean, it's 2023, for heaven's sakes. We've got to update our theology and the way we think about this. And so that's the pushback. Here's another piece of pushback in terms of defense for the cultural narrative. Why would a loving God, why would a loving God create me this way only to frustrate me and not allow me to act it out? I mean, that's one of the pushbacks that happens. Or here's another one. God wants me to be happy. Is that true? That's another whole sermon. Um, God wants me to be happy, so I want to live out my authentic self. Here's one. God created me uh, with these emotions, with these thoughts, with these feelings, with these attractions. Um, he's created me, and it's terrible that I have this uncontrollable sex drive, and God is saying, no, 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 no. Just incomplete. Some would say, in pushing back, that the Bible needs to be um, updated. It can't allow us to contradict our deepest impulse. That's what some people will say, actually, in the cultural narrative. It needs to be updated. And, uh, and of course, here's, here's a pushback. Come on, dude. I got needs. I've got needs in my life. And so that's a pushback there. Let me give you the formula, okay? Here's the formula for the cultural narrative. And the formula is this. God... Mixed with culture equals sexuality. That's what the cultural narrative says. That if you're a follower of Jesus, that you need to just update your theology, and it's okay as long as it's loving and it's consensual and, um, and it's not hurting anybody, and you just mix that together. And so God mixed with culture um, is the way the cultural narrative would go. Well, there's a second narrative. Um, let me give you the second narrative. Uh, the second narrative, I'll warn you in advance, it's good. It's really good but it's completely incomplete. It's absolutely incomplete. I actually grew up with this narrative, uh, hearing this narrative all the time, and it's called the purity narrative. Anybody ever hear this? The purity narrative. Again, it's good, because you're gonna push back as I talk about it. There's gonna be some pushback, because some of us grew up with this. Some of us have actually worked through this in our own life. It's good. I wanna tell you right up front, it's good, but it's incomplete. It doesn't give us a vision for what God has for us when it comes to our sexuality. So let me give you the key ideas when it comes to the purity narrative, or the purity story, uh, as parents are telling their kids, and as, you know, as we're helping with your students in high schoolers and college and so forth, uh, your own life, if you're single or married, um, here's some of the key ideas that sex matters to God more than any other moral category. Now think about that for a second. That's what this, the key idea of the purity narrative is, that God thinks of sex and its morality uh, higher than any other thing in life, and so watch out. Again, this is good, but it's incomplete. Or, if you want to please God, you need to stay sexually pure until you get married. Um, so that when you get married, you can validate it. And if you mess it up before you get married, then you have violated God's most important moral uh, line in life, and you've got a big hill to climb. You've got a huge hill to climb, and hope you get there. Hope you get there. That's the the sort of the you know, key ideas in this. Here's another key idea, that if you obey the command and you stay pure, sexually pure, because that's the narrative, that then there's going to be a good chance that God is going to bring some wonderful spouse into your, shame, into your life shame-free. That's the key idea when it comes to the purity. Another thought that comes to the purity narrative is that God hates sexual sin more than every other sin. And so we have to be really careful here because... 
um, God does hate sexual sin, but I think we would all agree if you study scripture, it's not that he hates that more than anything else. There may be more consequences. Uh, there may be lots of consequences, but he doesn't hate it more than any other sin. And that's what the, the purity narrative is really taught and pushed and so forth. So here's the message. Jot this down if you want. Here's the message of the purity narrative. And the message is this. Stay a virgin until marriage. And I think all of us would say, amen. That's good. If you've got a daughter, you're going to want to teach her that. If you've got a son, you're going to want to teach him that. Grandson, whatever. If you're single, you may want to pay attention to that. Here's the problem. If you're writing this down, write the word incomplete next to it. It's an incomplete because it's, it's really about a God who is out to get you and has given you this incredible gift in your life and there's little chance that you're gonna make it because it's so powerful and, and, and so here are some of the behaviors that we have when it comes to the purity narrative. Get a purity ring. Give a watch away and make a promise. Uh, now let me ask you, church, is there anything wrong with asking your kids to make a promise? No. In fact, I've done it with my own sons. Um, and I'd like to update my comments to my sons. They're all adults now. But if I had my sons in my home again, um, narrative number three is where I would go with them. I would probably still ask them to make a promise. But it's incomplete um, as we think about it. And so one of the behaviors is we make them promise. We get a ring. We get a watch. Um, those are all good things. It's just incomplete. Here's some of the other behaviors. We work really hard to push down sexual desires. And so we talk all the time about push it down, push it down, take a cold shower. You know, those are all good things, um, but it's incomplete. Or we say things like, you need to define what sex is. What is, is. How do you define that? And questions come up like, what about masturbation? Is that sex? What about, uh, am I still a virgin if I have oral sex? Um, does that, have I violated it there? How far is too far in the dating life? Um, can I go this far? I mean, can I get as close to the edge as possible without falling off the edge? How far is too far? And so questions come up. Here are the pushbacks. Okay, ready for the defense? Here's the pushback on the purity narrative that elements of this narrative are biblical, and they are. Make sure you hear that, church. They are. But they're woefully incomplete because the purity narrative is centered around the fact that there's a God out there who hates more than anything else sexual sin who's going to pound you and hound on you and there's no way it's like holding a beach ball under the water forever and ever and ever because that's the vision you have. Just hold it down. And so it's incomplete. Here's another pushback. We often only read the passages of the do's and don'ts. That's that list I gave you in the very beginning. It's actually on your notes if you want to download it. There's a lot of passages about do's and don'ts. Did you know that the Bible speaks of sex from Genesis to Revelation. Wait till I show you this. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. See, the pushback is, I saved sex for marriage, and marriage never came. And so there's pain there. Some would push back and say, sex in marriage has been awful. I waited for marriage, and sex in marriage has been awful. It's been boring. It's not like what I wanted. Or some would say, I was sold a lie. Or what about sexual trauma? And if that's where you're at today, I gotta tell you, first of all, you're safe here. You're safe in one of our campuses online. 
And in fact, at the very end today, we're going to give you an opportunity to take communion as I want to take communion and rehearse the fact that God can forgive and he can restore and he can bring restoration and he can love you back in a way and pull all that back because some of it may not be your fault. And so what about sexual trauma? Can I recover my purity? Can, I, can God redeem my story? Or here's another thing. Um, if I failed, so I'm a second-class Christian now? How does that work? And then, of course, in the, sexu- in the sexual purity narrative, um, there's no context for the LGBTQ community. There's really no context for that because sexual purity narrative is all about a man and a woman, and you should stay pure, and when you get married, then go for it. So there's no context in understanding or a vision for even those that find themselves in the LGBTQ plus community. It turns out, the pushback is, is that marriage is not the silver bullet to kill my desires. And all of you, those of you that are married, you probably could just shout, don't do it, but you could shout, amen. It's not the silver bullet. So if you're single, make sure that you understand that. Here's the formula. If you want to write the formula down, when it comes to the purity narrative, the formula is this. God and sex in the same conversation makes no sense. It just makes no sense. I don't get it. It's really hard. It seems like it's just no, 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 no. Uh, It just makes no sense. And church, here's where it turns really good. So if I've lost you, come on back. Because the truth of the matter is, for many Christians, there are only two narratives. You've got the cultural narrative, and then you've got the purity narratives. I want to give you a third narrative, but I want to give you a quote from Dr. Julie Slattery, who I think is one of the best voices today on all of these nuanced issues. Very biblical, very helpful, actually. And she says this, and I think this is just on the money. Sexuality is inseparable from your spirituality. It's inseparable. In other words, your sexuality is not over here, and your spirituality is here, and somehow they really don't connect at any real level except that God says, don't do it. And so there's no connection there. The third narrative says that your sexuality is very connected to your spirituality, and boy, it's good. Let me give it to you. Here's the title of the third narrative. It's the covenant narrative. That when you enter into a relationship with God, he enters into a covenant. That's why in communion we're going to celebrate the new covenant. And when you enter into a covenant with God, he wants us to understand that at a human level. And at a human level, he's given us a few things that will help us to understand that he makes a covenant to us. Okay, this is the opportunity for you to respond, okay? Is it true that if you're in relationship with God through Jesus Christ because of what he accomplished on the cross, dying for you, walking away from the tomb where you can have freedom from your sin, you no longer belong to yourself, you belong to him, and in that, would it be true that in the relationship that you have with God, that covenant there, he loves you intimately, he does everything you know, for you because he has your best interest in mind, he is unconditional in his love, he is sacrificial in all that he does for you, that's the covenant that God makes. And church, would you agree with that, yes or no? Come on, help me out. Yes. So the covenant theology, here's the key idea, 
The key idea to the covenant theology or covenant narrative is that sex speaks of the nature of God. In other words, sex is set in the story of God. And so sex between a man and a woman is set in the story for you and I from Genesis all the way to Revelation to understand that God gives us this great gift to enjoy pleasure, to enjoy all kinds of things in our life, procreation and other things. I'll mention a few things in just a second. But he gives us that. It's all in the context of the story of God because he is a covenant with us. He wants you, if you want to get married, to enter into a covenant, and it's in the context of that covenant that you see a covenant narrative. Are you with me so far, church? Here's some other key ideas. A God who wants to make a covenant with us that's based on love and intimacy. God created sex and the covenant marriage to be a metaphor. That sex is a metaphor. In other words, listen carefully, teenagers, it's a story. It's a parable. Um, It has great meaning. Sex has great meaning in the context that God gives it, in the context of the covenant It's a metaphor of how deeply God loves and longs to be in relationship with us. And so he says to Adam and Eve, I want you to come together and become one, help me out, finish the sentence, one what? Flesh. And it's in becoming one flesh that it's in that context of that covenant that God says, the way you can rehearse my covenant with you is in the context of marriage that you rehearse that through the covenant narrative of sexuality. That I've given it to you to rehearse that covenant at the human level on a regular basis. Sexual intimacy between a husband and wife in the Old Testament, if you were to study, and I've done it for you, um, the word is yada in the Hebrew. Y-A-D-A, it's the word yada. And yada is also the word to use for intimacy with God. And so God uses the same word between an intimacy of a husband and a wife as he does with our relationship with God. There's got to be something there, I think. Turns out that yada appears 940 times in the Old Testament. 940 times. Because I think God's trying to communicate a big vision, a big picture for us of our sexuality to say that this, this gift that I've given to you um, in this story that I have in a relationship with you, that sex is in the context of that story. In fact, let me say it this way, teenagers. Listen up, teenagers. See, if sex is about your story with God and your story with somebody else, If you shortcut that and do something outside of that, it destroys your story, as it destroyed many of our stories. And so we don't want that for you, teenagers, college students. Let me give you some examples of the word yada. In Psalm 139, it says, O Lord, you have searched me, and you have known me. Yada. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 6 says, In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. In all your ways, acknowledge yada. If you enter into an intimate relationship with him, he will make your path straight. Exodus chapter 33, verse 13, Moses said, If I have found favor in your sight, God, please show me your ways that I may know you, yada you, in order to find favor in your sight. See, here's the message, if you want to jot it down, when it comes to the covenant 
narrative, and that's this, that sex is a metaphor of a covenant relationship. It's a metaphor that God gives it to us. It's a gift that he gives to us, and he wants it to be done in a covenant situation because that's who God is. He's a covenant God, and that's why we celebrate the new covenant and that forgiveness and mercy and grace and justification and righteousness are all in that new covenant. It's given to us in the context of all that. Let me give you some realities, not pushback. Let me give you some realities of this this covenant narrative, and it's this, that the most important reason that God created sex is to communicate his covenant to us. Now let me let that sink in for a minute. The most important reason that God gave us sex is to communicate his covenant to us. And already in your mind, because I did, as I was studying and researching and looking, the pushback is, whoa, 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 whoa. Didn't God give us sex for procreation, for life? And I would say, yeah, that's the means of it. But that's not the reason. Because if you think about it, in a covenant with God, if you enter into a relationship with God and you are in a covenant with God, would you agree with me that you are given life? You are given everlasting life. In fact, you're given a new life. And so it's in the context of that covenant that I believe God gives us sex in the covenant narrative. And so the most important thing, a reason, is to communicate this covenant love. Yes, procreation happens because life happens. It's no wonder that God used procreation through the covenant of a man and a woman coming together. And so it's through sex that the means of creating life. That makes sense to me. Okay, some push back and say, well, what about pleasure? Oh yeah, pleasure is there. I mean, if you're in an intimate relationship with God, there's all kinds of pleasure to know that God loves you. He loves you unconditionally, and so there's pleasure there. No one's trying to take away the pleasure. There's pleasure there, absolutely, but that's not the reason, the most important reason. Some of you would say, well, it's intimacy. Okay, intimacy is there, but that's not the reason. The reason is to communicate a covenant, and in that covenant, there is intimacy, and so you can push back, and I need you to know, you can have a guilt-free covenant. Another one of the realities is no one needs sex. You know what our culture tells us? Let me go back to the first narrative for just a second. The culture narrative tells us it's a need in your life. It's not a need. If you don't ever have sex again, you will not die. Now, if you don't drink water, you're going to die. <laughs> you don't have food, you're going to die. But it's not a need in our life. Now, that may be a little bit reductionistic, and so I understand that, so let me just try to explain that a little bit. We don't need sex, but we, I think we would all agree that it's necessary to rehearse the covenant in marriage. So while you don't need it to survive, it is necessary and it's good because God placed it inside of that. See, here's another reality, that hormones are released, uh, like oxytocin and vasopressin and others are released during sexual intimacy, which is a bonding agent. And actually, believe it or not, those hormones um, discourage sexual temptation. Did you know that? That those hormones that are released in sexual intimacy in the context of that covenant are there in order to discourage sexual temptation and create bonding. So your bells are going off, and hopefully they are, whether you're single or married or high school or whatever. Um, you are in a covenant with God, and he gives you experiences uh, throughout your life, such as marriage, sexual intimacy, bonding, preparing for the future. All of that is there. And when you and I 
have a lack of understanding or experience with sex that's damaged or twisted, our view of God is compromised. Our view of God is absolutely compromised. All right, church, if you've missed everything else, don't miss this. The most important scripture in the entire Bible about your sex life. You ready for this? Here's the verse I'm going to give you. It's the best verse, I believe, in the Bible about your sex life. And it's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. And it's not about no, no, no. It's not about, you know, all the things that we just read. Here's the most important scripture in the Bible about your sex life. And it says this. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. In other words, if you've left your life, and you've entered into a covenant with God, that's the greatest thing you can think about because it's in that covenant with God that then he places the covenant narrative for you should you get married. So let me talk about a couple of ways that the behaviors play out. And I know we're short on time here, but would you let me do this for a few minutes? Is that okay, church? A few more minutes here and then I'll I'll be done. Let me talk about singles for just a second. Singles, you see, sex is a metaphor of God's covenant to you, so outside of the earthly covenant relationship, there's going to be enormous confusion. There's going to be enormous confusion, spiritually, emotionally, mentally. And so because sex is a metaphor of a covenant that you have with somebody else because of a covenant with God, it's going to be completely confusing um, if there's sex outside of marriage. Let Let me go to the question about what about living together? What's wrong with living together? Well, here's what I would say. Living together with somebody in marriage is a pseudo-covenant relationship. And you add sex to that, and it can be terribly confusing to you and to the world around you, mind you. Sounds old-fashioned, doesn't it? And the sexual tension that's there and the bonding that will happen to you outside of a covenant will be very confusing. Because if the hormones that are released in terms of bonding and sexual temptation, it's not in a context of a covenant. Living together creates all kinds of confusion for you, all kinds of confusion for everybody around you, all kinds of confusion for your family, all kinds of confusion for your spiritual life. Singles, listen carefully. You may not even need the metaphor of sex. Paul himself tells us in 1 Corinthians 7 that being single is awesome. It's awesome. You have less responsibility. You can do whatever you want in a sense. And so that's why I'm saying it's a viable way of living. But if you choose to be single or you are single now, Paul says it's awesome. It's okay. In fact, Paul says that if you can't control your sexual desires, this is the way I've already heard it, then you should get married. And the problem with that sentence, which is true, is that it seems like compliance. You just need to get married because you can't control yourself. Here's what I would say. If you have sexual desires and you desire to get married, God understands that. And the metaphor is only valid and viable and will only make sense in the context of a relationship. Married couples. Sex is an opportunity for you to rehearse your covenant every time. Is there pleasure? Yes. But is that the idea? Not really. The idea is that you would fulfill your covenant and you would rehearse your covenant to your spouse. Yes, pleasure is there. And sometimes you need to work through things in life. I get that. But the implication will be that as you live out your life with your spouse, 
you get to rehearse that covenant as often as you choose. By the way, church, did you know that that's exactly why I believe Jesus said that there's no marriage in heaven, implication, there's no sex in heaven. Why? Because sex is a metaphor. Marriage is a metaphor. We won't need it because we'll be with God. And so we won't be confused about this intimate relationship that we have got with God. Now, that's not to say that we won't know each other and have great relationships, and, and I'm sure we'll play soccer in heaven. I know that for a fact. But you know, beyond that, I mean, there's a lot of good things that, that'll be there for you. Here's, here's the picture I want you to see. When we talk about sexuality, it's like a puzzle. If all you do is look at one little piece, you miss the vision that God has. But when you back away and you see the vision that God has, that this is about a covenant and that God can help us, and he wants to celebrate this, and to celebrate it in the context that he's given to us, outside of that, it will be destructive and destroy us. Here's the formula, if you want to write down the formula, and we're just about done here, the formula for the covenant narrative is this, sex without God's covenant makes no sense. It makes no sense. And so, As we're here today, I'm just going to invite you to bow your heads with me for a minute because I recognize that even a conversation like this could be very painful for some. And as I pray, I'm going to invite the campus pastors to come up in just a second. We're going to have communion. But I just want you to bow your heads and would you just, in your own life, would you just rehearse your covenant with God? That's the beginning place. And say, Lord, I'm yours. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you've You've given your life to him. And in that, you have an amazing covenant. Father, we thank you that today we can look at scripture and we can see that the picture, the vision, the metaphor, the story, the example that you give to us about our sexuality is such a beautiful thing. And we thank you, Father, that outside of that, it brings so much damage to us. And I pray, Lord, that you would forgive us Collectively as a church, I pray over our church family, whether online or any one of our campuses. Father, I pray over us, and I just ask that you would forgive us today. We thank you, Father, that you can redeem and you can restore and you can heal. And I pray, Lord, that that would happen again. That today as we celebrate this covenant narrative that you've given to us, may it cause us to be alive. And may it give us a vision that we can teach our kids and our students, and our college students. We thank you, Father. We ask that you'd be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen.